One of my favorite memories, it's kind of a weird memory, but from when I was growing up, um, involved a sledgehammer. I don't know what I liked about sledgehammers. Um, I think it's because back then it gave you such power, you know, and uh, the church we had in Eva Beach, there were a couple of um, older houses that were on there, and um, one time, one of them that we actually used to use as the youth room, it caught on fire, burned down, um, didn't burn completely, but um, we needed to get rid of it, and back then, we didn't hire people to get rid of it, we just got rid of it ourselves, and, and nobody had to encourage me to go out there with a sledgehammer and just start wailing on that house. It was, it was fun. Um, probably dangerous, because I had no idea what I was doing. I probably could have knocked out a load-bearing beam, and I wouldn't be talking to you right now. Um, there'd probably be a little plaque over there remembering the great sacrifice that I made. There's something about sledgehammers, though. They can do a lot. There's a far more famous sledgehammer than my little hammer that I swung in of a beach back in the 70s. And it's this, you see it in this picture here, and maybe you, you know what that picture is. But um, you can see the guy is swinging a sledgehammer. All the water is because he's being blasted by a water cannon. Does anybody know what that's a picture of? The Berlin Wall. Now, those of you who are younger than the age of uh, 25, 30, this is ancient history. For the rest of us, we actually remember this. If we were paying attention in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, we were going through this thing called the Cold War. And one of the emblems of the Cold War, one of the symbols of the Cold War, was this Berlin Wall. This wall in the, in the city of Berlin that, that separated East Germany from West Germany and really marked really where all of the, the communist bloc, the Soviet bloc, started. And then the West ended. It's right there, divided by, by that wall. And some of you might remember President Reagan when you know, he made this speech, which at the time, which wouldn't have been surprising because the press treated presidents like Reagan the same way they do today. But he, he stood there in, in Berlin and he made this speech in 1987 where he's like, you know, I can't do a Reagan imitation, otherwise you'd really be impressed. But he's like, Mr. Gorbachev, you know, tear down that wall. It wasn't until later, two years later, when this starts happening. The wall starts coming down. And it symbolized the fall of all of those, this, the Soviet bloc, those communist nations. And it, and it symbolized a freedom that came. But it was because of this, this sledgehammer. The sledgehammer helped physically take away that symbol. And pretty soon, there was just more than one sledgehammer. Well, if you see the title for today's message, it's probably one you haven't seen before. The Holy Sledgehammer. Holy Sledgehammer. Who's swinging it? And what is trying to be accomplished? 
Well, this is all part of our series in Ephesians. In Ephesians, we've been talking about this great mystery. And some of you may have already guessed what the great mystery is. After today, you might really know what the great mystery is, but we're, we're moving in that direction. What is this, this great mystery? And what we find here is, we find that, that God's about to lay out his plan his plan for not just the salvation of individual souls, but his plan for the salvation of the whole world. And the problem is, is that the world has rejected God, much less his plan. But the world still desires the same things that God wants to accomplish in his plan. If you talk to people and you talk about, you know, what would be you know, great for this world, and the talk is about... It's about peace, it's about unity. Well, here's the problem. The world's path to unity will ultimately lead to uniformity. The push for freedom, the more we become free as individuals, the more to hold our society together, we're gonna have to be conformed. We're gonna have to be controlled. It's just, the nature of who we are. It's, it's part of uh, being a human being. There will always be people who, who disagree. There will always be people who have a difference of opinion. There will always be people who, who want to institute a different way of doing things, and you have to deal with those people. And the more free you make society, the more of those kind of people that you have. Unity is not uniformity. Uniformity can lead to some form of unity, but uniformity comes when everybody is exactly the same. We conform. It's one of the reasons we've been talking about in the church, one of the, the great characteristics of a church is not that it's uniform, but that it's diverse. It's different. It's not everybody is the same. It's everybody comes from different, different ages, different ethnic groups, different socioeconomic classes. That's the beauty of the church. But the world will always push that way. You see, we, we have this, this huge reaction. It it's, used to be called postmodern. Now people call it post-postmodern. Who knows what it's going to be called next? But it's this, it's this reaction against all the traditions and the structures of the past. It's saying they're flawed. And you know what? They are flawed. It's saying they create problems, and you know what? They create problems. It's not, a, it's not a new thing. We've always known that. But here's the thing. There's more and more of a push to say, we should do away with them. Let's just get rid of them. Let's get rid of all the structures from the past. Let's get rid of you know, government and how government ex exists. Let's get rid of... of uh, of you know, the way that uh, we have church and religion. Let's just get rid of all that. All of these things cause problems. All of these things are flawed. Let's get rid of them. Why can't we just be free? Why can't we just make up our own minds? Why can't we just govern ourselves? Well, as I told you before, people who are smart who have been at the forefront of pushing for this kind of freedom, this freedom from, from all of these structures of the past, now that they're, they're winning, now that it could be close to it actually happening, 
the people who are smart are asking this question. The question they're asking is, okay, so if we win, what then holds society together? What holds society together? If we win, if we, if we free ourselves from all the tyranny of, of all the governments, then what reason do we have to be together? What holds us together? We told you that, that the United States is in particularly is, is vulnerable to this because the United States is, is, is the nation, the most prime example of a, of a nation that's not united by geography. It's not united by, by ethnicity. It's not you know, united by, by a powerful government, a dynasty that's, that's held all things together. It's not held together by that. The United States is a nation that's held together by an idea. We had an idea, and we agreed to that idea, and we said this idea is worth fighting for. This idea is worth dying for, and now this idea is worth living for. What happens when more and more people don't agree with that idea? What's going to hold us together? It's a problem. It's a problem that the world faces. We, we get the freedom we fight, we're fighting for. But at the expense of having nothing to unite us. Well, Paul here 2,000 years ago, he's about to reveal this great mystery of God. And this great mystery of God is this mystery about what does hold us together. And he's told the church at Ephesus, he's told them just who Christ is and how awesome Christ is. And then he told them who they were and then who they became because of Jesus Christ. And he called them at the end of last week. He called them at the end of that passage. He said, you are his workmanship. You're his workmanship. And he's talking to the church, saying, you're his workmanship. Well, he begins here to tell them what that workmanship looks like. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, it says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit in the Father. 
So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So he's, he's talking to these, these Christians at at this church at Ephesus. And if you know back then, the church was a mix. There was a lot of, of, of Jewish people who had, who had converted to Christianity. And they really, in a sense, weren't converting. Because Christianity was, was a fulfillment of, of, of what had been um, taught to them in, in Judaism. And so, so they were just, they were taking the next step. They were, they were accepting the Messiah, the Messiah that they had looked for. And so you had that group. And then you had other Jewish people who weren't really Jewish in a religious sense. They were, they were more kind of Greek and Roman in, in the way that they lived and everything. And, 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 and they also were there in the church. And then there was the rest of everyone else, which is probably most of you here. There were the Gentiles, people who weren't Jewish. And they were there in the church. They had, they had had faith in Jesus Christ. They had joined the church. And they, there they were. And some of these had actually been what the Bible refers to as, as God-fearers. And God-fearers just simply means this, that before Jesus Christ came, there were, there were non-Jewish people that, that believed in the one true God. And so they, they wanted to, to go and and worship and learn about the one true God, and they would go to the synagogues. And in a lot of ways, they would be following the Jewish faith. However, they weren't fully um, converted to Judaism. Because to do that, if you were a man, you had to do two things. One was to be circumcised, and the other one was to go um, offer certain sacrifices and then um, you know, keep certain laws. And they didn't want to do that for whatever reason. I understand the circumcision part, not sure about the other part, but they didn't want to do that. They were, they, um, they wanted to be there, but they didn't want to fully convert. And so now Paul's writing to this group, and probably at the church at Ephesus, which is a little bit distant from Jerusalem, probably at this point, he's saying, um, he's, he's talking to a group that's largely Gentile. And so, and so he tells them, he says, look, remember, remember there was a time when you were separated from Christ and you were alienated. You were alienated. And he talks about the commonwealth of Israel, but Paul's talked about Israel as not being, he's not talking about the physical nation, the historical nation of Israel. He's talking about those who are, who are faithfully following God. And, and he, he says in, in, in another letter, he talks about how not all who are Jewish are Jews. And his, and his understanding of that is that there are people who are ethnically Jewish who aren't faithful to the faith. But he's talking about that. He's saying, you, you were strangers to that, but now it's not that way. You were in a place where you had no hope, and you were without God. He goes, no, it's not that way. And he tells them why. And so 
what he's talking about is that there's this wall. And it's this wall between God's people and the wall between the rest of the world. How did this wall come to, come to pass? Well, it came to pass because, first of all, there was a rejection of God by people. If you're going to reject God, you're going to reject his people. And this wall is going to be divided. At this time, it's, it's something we don't, I think, fully appreciate. Because for us, we don't really think about it in these terms. But, but the separation between the Jewish people and the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, was significant. And it came from both sides. From, from the Jewish side, it was, it was that these were people who were considered unclean and unholy. They were, they were pagans, and their practices were, were just things that just were unacceptable, went against their own ethics. Um, and especially when it came to their, the forms of worship, which for a lot of people in the Roman Empire, they weren't really um, polytheists. They weren't really believing in all these gods but it was part of their culture, so they just went along with it. And as you might know, a lot of the feasts and festivals that were in the, the Greco-Roman religions is that they involved a lot of just sexual immorality. And so it was a problem. But it's even more than that. It wasn't just all of those things. It was also the fact that, that they found certain things like, like the food that the Gentiles ate. They found it repulsive. Like, they couldn't even imagine eating it. It's like trying to give spam to tourists. You know, they just, just can't believe that anybody would eat that stuff, right? Or, but it was, it, was, it was so much more that they found them repulsive in so many ways. Vulgar. It wasn't simply, oh, we're better than you, we're legalists, no. There's more than that. And the feelings were often reciprocated from the Gentiles. They looked at the Jewish people as kind of odd, weird, kind of keep to themselves. All these practices that they didn't understand. And there's this divide. We even see this in the early church. In the early church, we find the first dispute in the early church is, is um, you know, there's, there are widows, and some of the widows, they were all Jewish, but some of the widows were more, um, were more like the Greeks, they were more like the Gentiles, and some were more like the Hebrew um, people. And, and, and there was a complaint that the ones who were more like the Greeks were not being treated fairly. That's the first dispute in the church. It's a big deal. For us, we don't appreciate it, because, you know, we don't, we don't think... In, that, in those terms. But it's a huge wall. And it's the feeling that even if I, the Gentile, got circumcised, and even if I, the Gentile, did all the sacrifices, even if I did everything that a good Jewish person would do, I still, in some ways, would not be accepted. I still would be somehow a second-class citizen. And so there it is this rejection of God that began thousands of years earlier that built this wall. And when you have a wall, you have people that don't understand one another. When people don't understand one another, 
the wall just gets bigger. When people don't understand one another and they don't communicate and they don't talk and they don't work through problems and everything else, eventually you don't even need a wall. They all create the wall themselves. What's going on? And you see, what this does is this tells us one of the most important messages of the Bible. It's there from the very beginning of the Bible, from Genesis forward, that there are two things that are tied closely together. One is our love for God, and the other is our love for each other. Those aren't separate. You, you, you cannot just say, oh, you know, I just don't want to believe in God, but I want to love everybody the way God does. I want to go straight to love. No, you can't do it. And at the same time, you cannot just say, I love God, and then treat everybody like garbage. You can't do that either. They're tied together. They're tied together in the Ten Commandments. They're tied together in the prophets. They're tied together by Jesus. Jesus himself says, you know, what, when he was asked, what's the, most great, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, the greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two greatest commandments. He said, those are the great commandments. They're tied together. They cannot be separated. You cannot say, I have a deep love for God and not have a deep love for other people. And at the same time, you cannot really love people the way that God knows we need to love people to save this world if we don't love God. They go together. They can't be separated. There's people that say, I just, you know, I just, I like the ideas the Bible has about peace and, and gentleness and, and kindness and faith and, and all of this. I like those ideas. So I'm going to try to incorporate them in my lives. You know what? I would rather you do that than not do that. But as I've told you guys before, what makes Christianity different from any other religion is that Christianity admits up front that what is needed for this world, what is needed to make things right, to be able to love the way that God demands that we love, that it is impossible. It is nothing that you can do on your own. Like I said, I'd rather you try than not try because you'll be a better person by trying. But we will never get to that point. It's impossible. That's what we're reminded of again and again in the Bible. The standards God has are impossible. It's not about how good I am, how hard I work. It's impossible. Sounds kind of depressing. Well, it is depressing. Unless you read that next part. It says in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in flesh the dividing wall of hostility. It's impossible on our own. It's more than possible in Jesus Christ. It's not just possible in Jesus Christ. It will happen. And in some senses, it already has happened. He 
broke down the wall. In this case, specifically talking about this wall between the Jewish people and the Gentiles. Even in the church, after they became Christians, there was still a wall, and, and Jesus came and he broke down that wall. There's no hostility. He made the two one. He did the impossible. On our own, we could have maybe learned to tolerate one another. We could have maybe learned to get along with one another. And as long as, our, as long as that wasn't tested, as long as it wasn't really pushed, you know, we're okay. You know, Hawaii is a little different because it's kind of uh, multi-cultural you know, and just in our nature. But, you know, and I used to preach sermons like this on the mainland. You know, one of the things that I would say as an example sometimes is this. It's like, um, you know, everybody's good you know, if our church is predominantly just one ethnicity, one race, everybody's good when, when, when one family from a different ethnicity comes. We're all happy about it. But then, as soon as maybe five or ten families of a different ethnicity come, we start to get worried. At some point, we start to think like, what is that food at the potluck? I really don't understand what these people brought. We start thinking about the way that they worship. They don't worship like we worship. They seem to be moving, almost dancing. Or they might be more expressive or less expressive. And you can find people, especially where the racial tensions are, are there in, in some of the cities of the United States, everybody's good until they reach a limit. And one thing I used to say is everybody, everybody's good with multicultural and multi-ethnic church until somebody wants to date your daughter or your son wants to date someone else. Say, go. It's not what I had in mind. Jesus came to tear down those walls. He came to tear down those walls, and it tells us it's through the cross that he tears down those walls. And why does that happen? Why does the cross tear down those walls? Because the cross, when we have faith in Jesus Christ, we come to the foot of the cross, and at the foot of the cross, we are all equal. You see, when you say that today, we're all equal, everybody wants to go like this, we're all equal, we're all equal. No, at the foot of the cross, it's like this, we're all equal. We're undone. We're broken at the cross. We're not equal because we're all powerful. We all have equal power, and now we can, we can, we can all be, you know, do our, whatever we want. We're broken at the cross. We're equal because we realize it's impossible to do these things on our own. That is only through faith in Jesus Christ. That's why we're equal. The world's push for equality keeps pushing us up. The Bible's plan is, first of all, you go down. And then Christ raises you up. Christ is the one who lives through you. And he gives you way more power 
than you could ever muster on your own. See, the cross is, yes, there to save us from our sins. Yes, to save us from, from, uh, from you know, damnation and life without God and an eternity without God. But he's also there. The cross is also there to bring us into this kingdom. And in this kingdom, we're equal. Not because we're all great. We're equal because we're all servants. We're equal because we're all humble. We're equal because we all have the same relationship with Jesus Christ. On our own, all equality does is leave us in the same state. Eventually, we're going to seek to dominate one another because equal doesn't mean we all agree. Eventually, we're going to divide again. Eventually, we're going to consume one another. Well, the other thing we see here is how this happens. He's, he tells us there, he says that, that he will unite us by his spirit. He says, for through him, through Jesus, the one who, who brought the near and the far together, he says, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. It's by his spirit. In Romans, he talks about his spirit. He talks about how the spirit pours out on us love. In fact, the evidence that we have, that, that we have the spirit, is love. And I don't mean love in just the, the normal sense of the word. And, and you, those of you who've been here, you know, you've, you've heard me talk about this, and especially when we went through John, and we, and we looked at the high standard for love. That love is... From, from God's perspective, not from a human perspective, from God's perspective, yes, love is eternal. Yes, love is kind. Love is patient. Love is all those things. We talked about that. Love is forgiving. Love is full of grace. We've talked about that. Love is unconditional. Love is sacrificial. Love is directed to strangers, people we don't know people who are helpless and cannot do anything for us. Love is directed to all those. But the high standard of God's love is even more than that. Because you as a human being might go, you know, I can do that. I can do that. I can, I can love a stranger. I can love those who are helpless. But of course, we see the highest standard of God's love on the cross. When Jesus, Jesus had earlier said, love your enemies. Love your enemies. But what Jesus does while he's on the cross is that he loves his enemies while they are torturing him. Can you imagine that? While they are torturing him. While they are mocking him. In the middle of it. Not afterwards, after he's had time to process it. Not afterwards, after he's kind of comfortable and, he, and he's got his strength back in the middle of it while they're killing him. He says, Father, forgive them. I dare you to tell me you have that kind of love on your own. Not that I will try to kill you and ask you to forgive me, but I would hope 
that you would realize that is an impossibly high standard. It is not something we can do. Because what gets in the way of our love is ourself. It's something like we, we, we get something out of it. We maybe get attention. We maybe feel good about ourselves. You know, we may feel that we've done a good deed. We may feel that we're going to get some karma or reward. And, and, and none of that is what the Bible talks about. None of that is why we love. And you can imagine when somebody is attacking you and they're hurting you, that's when we think about ourselves the most. You know, I told you a few weeks ago, a couple months ago, and I had, you know, I had the kidney stone attack. And you know what? I was not thinking about anybody else at that moment. I was thinking about me. That's all I could think about. You can imagine if someone is attacking me. Am I really going to be thinking about them? Or am I only going to be thinking about my own pain? Only way over that, something has to happen to me to be able to love with this impossible love. But understand that Ephesians isn't written to just one person. It's not written to us as individuals. We read it that way. We often read the Bible as though it was written to one person at a time. And there's nothing wrong with that. As long as you don't forget that this letter was written to a church. It was written to a group of people. And what does he call them? He says, this is the awesome thing. All of you who are aliens, all of you who are strangers, all of you who were far away, you've been brought near. The wall's been torn down. And now you're a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. You're a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you guys are like we are, but you come to our house, just drop in randomly. It's not going to be that neat. Now, some of you are that way. 24 hours a day, your house is, is perfect. Our house isn't that way. But if we know you're coming, we're cleaning it up. Right? And you're probably that way too. Well, guess what? If we're the holy temple, if we're the dwelling place for God, we're the dwelling place for his spirit. And he's here. What do we need to do? What do we need to do to, to get the place ready? And the place really isn't this building. A church has never been a building. It's kind of a weird thing that we say go to church when really we can't really go to church. We say we're going to the building. It's talking about the people. It's talking about this unity that we have, this love that we have, bound together by his spirit. His spirit dwells in a place I guarantee you, if somehow Jesus could send us a message and Jesus would say, look, next week Sunday, I am going to show up into your church, physically be at your church. I will be there. And we were all convinced that this was true. It may be a group delusion, but we all believe this is true. What would you do to get ready? 
What your mind goes to first kind of tells you what you think Jesus would prioritize. Oh, I'd make sure we vacuumed. I'd make sure we, uh, no trash in the yard. I would not even care. I don't think Jesus would care. I think he would care more about the condition of our hearts. I think he would, be, he would, he would care more about the, the strength of our relationships with one another. I would hate to, to have to confront Jesus knowing that in my heart I harbor a grudge and bitterness and anger at someone else. Because I have a feeling as soon as I saw him, I would just, I would just be undone. That would, that would be it. I wouldn't be able to talk. If I knew I was going to go see him, if I knew I was going to be right there with him, I would pray and confess every sin, even sins I haven't committed yet, just to make sure. I would just go through a list of all possible sins. I want to make sure that my life is as ready and as pure and as clean as possible. I would do everything I could that week to, to clean up any relationships that I have. Relationships I say, okay, I'll take care of it next week, next week when I have more time. No, I'll take care of it now. Because I would not want to stand before my Savior and not be ready. What would we do? I don't know. But if we're going to be the dwelling place for God, the dwelling place for His Spirit, those aren't just fancy words. Those are words to say we acknowledge that he's in our relationships, in our presence as a church. Let's be a dwelling place that's worthy of the Holy Spirit. Well, just two quick points. Even though Jesus came and he tore down the wall, notice it says he tore down the wall. The wall's not there, but people will still act like the wall is there, especially if they choose to continue to reject God. There is nothing to stop people from, from coming to Christ. There is nothing that says, no, you have to, you have to you know, go through all these checkpoints. No, the Bible is very simple. It says, if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's nothing that prevents that except people who still see a wall where there is no wall. And the final point is just simply this. And this hints at the mystery that's, that we're finally going to reveal is that, is that Jesus came to tear down every man-made wall. There is only one legitimate reason that we should separate from one another, and that is when there is sin that's unconfessed. But all these other walls we create, these generational walls, these ethnic walls, these education walls, these, these walls of, of economics and any other wall that we create, Jesus came with his sledgehammer to tear them down. 
And it's kind of simple. It's kind of simple how, this, how we, can, we can have access to that. Because the Bible tells us that, that what we do as Christians should always be done for the sake of unity. And I'm not talking about unity for unity's sake. Obviously, if someone is teaching something false or living in a way that's, that's against what God says, we, we need to deal with those things. But he says we should be diligent. We should be diligent to preserve the unity. But this unity comes from love. But where does this love come from? This love comes, as Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, from faith. That's why we always have to begin with faith. When we begin with faith, and that faith is expressed in love, and that love results in unity, every wall is torn down. There should be no walls between us. That's what Jesus came to do. That is the hope for the world. That is a, that is a, a kingdom that can still be diverse, but it can be united. Because it's united with that very beginning belief of faith in Jesus Christ and humbling ourselves at the foot of the cross and saying, yes, Lord. Yes. I will follow you. I will give my life to you. That's what it is. If we want true unity, we want true peace, it's only going to come through Jesus Christ. And that's what I hope our prayer is.